Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life. And what next steps do you want to take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 61. I am so glad that you are here. If this is your first time uh, visiting the I Dare You podcast, welcome. We have a lot of new listeners every single week because so many of you are subscribing and listening and sharing. And thank you. I appreciate that. So if you're new, again, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. Now, our guest this week, this is going to be a good one. She is Jamie Kreiner. Jamie is professor of history at the University of Georgia, and she is a historian of the early Middle Ages. Fascinating interview. Love talking to her. Now, her most recent book, The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction, is fascinating. She explores early Christian monks' frustrations with distraction. Sound familiar? So if you've ever struggled with distraction, you're going to gain a lot from this episode. And if you're a fan of history, or whether that be actual history or even some of the more historical shows on Netflix or HBO Plus or you name it, it's just a fascinating discussion with someone who knows all about history and has devoted a large part of her life to this early middle age time period. And she loves this. It's very apparent in her perspective on what monks went through, early Christian monks, and how that applies to us in current day, it'll blow your mind. So now, I can't wait for this interview and for you to meet Jamie. She's here. Welcome to episode 61. Here, everyone, is Jamie Kreiner. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. It is really good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I've been waiting for this. I, I listened to a podcast with you, Jamie, from maybe a year or two ago. And the topic was another book you wrote. Do I have this right? Legions of Pigs in Medieval Times or the Medieval West. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Legions of Pigs. That's right. But you were a professor of history. How did you land in that area for your vocation um, at University of Georgia? Where did it all start and how did you get where you are? Um, it was pretty random. I was a clarinetist in college and um thought I was going to be a musician, but I had to take a history class. And the one that I really wanted to take was full. It was on Nazi Germany, um, something I had heard of. <laughs> so uh, the the open class that I could take was called, um, well, it was about the early Middle Ages, um, yeah. which is this period from roughly 500 to 1000. I didn't know anything about it. And actually, when I first got in the class and started you know, it might've been the first or second session. I was like, I realized I had no idea at all in my mind of what this period was like, you know, like it wasn't that I had misconceptions that needed to be corrected as it was total blank space. And I thought, yeah, how weird is it that between periods, we know better through popular culture, like the Roman empire or the high middle ages, um, you know, there could be all of these changes and activities and transitions. And I don't know, I just thought that was really cool. So I um, just kept, kept taking classes in medieval history and um, learned you could go to grad school for it. So I did that. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, and then, yeah, the job at UGA, um, I, you know, it was my first um, tenure track job out of grad school in my postdoc. And um, I really love it in Athens. So that's why I'm here. That's great. Beautiful town, beautiful college too. Yeah. The, what is there about the air, the uh, middle ages or the medieval times that is the most attractive to you? What really connects you with, with that area of history of all that you could be studying? 
Um, I think it's that it feels so remote. I, I don't know if that's a personal thing, um, just because I had known so little about it, but first of all, I guess just getting a sense of how unusual, um, people's experiences and perceptions even are, um, you, you get a real sense of the full range of humanity, the sense of possibility of how different things could be. And then embedded within that weirdness, there are these moments where, it feels really familiar and um, very similar to the kinds of experiences and ideas we've got now. And those that's sort of like a nice surprise lodged at the center where you find these um, examples of human connection where you wouldn't expect them. You know, I, I too, I don't know a lot. I mean, obviously <laughs> you're, you're the professor of history. I'm not. So, but I'm reading your brand new book, The Wandering Mind. And I was reading it last night and I, it was so fascinating because I, my knowledge level was so low in that area to your point, but I just was immersed in it. And the storytelling and the way that you write is just so inviting. It's such a great, great book, Jamie. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, um, besides sort of wanting to introduce people to the specific subject of that book, I was really hoping to invite people into this world of late antiquity and the early middle ages that, um, I don't know, I think could just use more presence in the popular imagination. So I'm glad it, it resonated. Yeah. What, what do you think most people miss about that, that area, that area of history? That people in those centuries were really smart and energetic. If I had to just pick one, it would be that. Um, it sometimes gets the moniker of the dark ages, which I think yeah. implies both that nothing happened or that, um, people were benighted. <laughs> so, um, there's just like a lot of lively, fascinating, um, material that still survives, even though the evidence can be patchy in places, it's still really a lively history. Yeah. Well, my wife and, and I'll admit it. And I were watching outlander on Netflix. That doesn't count at all. Does it? <laughs> I haven't seen Outlander. Okay. No, trust me. It doesn't. Trust me. I'll, I'll, I'll save you the hours. Don't, do not start okay. watching it. You, you'll be horrified. You'll be horrified. <laughs> All right. So now your, your brand new book, The Wandering Mind. Here, what I have really caught my eye about this book was what medieval monks tell us about distraction. There is so much here. Lately, I don't know what it is, Jamie. I've been really tuned in to this, this discussion or this thought of how today we are so distracted with I'm looking right here. I've got two smartphones in front of me. I got notifications dinging the whole time we're talking. Emails are coming in. And I just want to go back to a more nostalgic time. I just do. I want to go back and just a time when none of these distractions existed. I think you've got a different point of view on that, don't you? Yeah, I mean, um, unfortunately, I don't think there ever was a golden age where people <laughs> were undistracted. Definitely the monks of late antiquity and the early middle ages were distracted all the time, um, which, you know, often they're held up as sort of the exemplars of what things could be like, or used to be like, um, but they struggle constantly. Um, I don't think that's bad news though. I think it's kind of reassuring. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the one thing that I picked up from your book was, and you made that point, there's so much, there's so much data or sources for your book and there's so much writing and so much evidence that they were, uh, uh, you know, trying to connect their mind uh, and to, to get their mind and their body right. I am, you make the point that it's not because they were great at it. It was quite the opposite. And I'd love for you to tell us more about 
about these early Christian monks and what was their life like and what was causing such distraction for them? Well, monks had made this um, commitment that they were going to abandon all the stuff that had consumed their time and energy up to that point and um, dedicate themselves entirely to thinking about God, to thinking about you know, the divine order as a whole, like how the universe had been structured by God and what their, um, what their ethical obligations were to, as humans within that big system. Um, so they, they'd taken this huge step of cutting themselves off from their prior lives. And then when they, you know, enter this new space, they find that it's still hard to do what they had really wanted to do, which was, you know, concentrate in those ways. So, you know, they very much, um, you know, idealized a, a, a fully focused mind, something that was totally locked in on God. And they celebrated in their hagiographical accounts, you know, monastic heroes who were capable of doing that. But most of them found that it was um, just a constant battle. Um, they often used the language of battle, actually. They saw themselves in combat against, really? um, against distraction. Um, and so, yeah, they're the sources that we have are, um, I mean, there's so many different kinds that's, um, handbooks encouraging each other to, um, try various strategies. It's letters of advice exchanged back and forth. It's, um, systems of rules or regulations or models, or basically engineering plans for how a whole community could be designed to, help each other focus better. I mean, there's just so much material because <laughs> century after century, they're still, they're still combating it. And also they couldn't agree too on what the best tactics were because humans are complicated and, you know, there's always going to be disagreement in addition to each situation has its own complications. So yeah. um, that's another reason we have a lot of material is there's arguments happening about what's the best way to handle something. I love that. Well, yeah. you, you, you make the point about the, the the monks at that time they were obsessed with distraction and and you make the point that our own really our own obsession with distraction is remarkably medieval and i thought that was just a beautiful way of, of putting it what were what were just a few of the big distractions that these monks were dealing with hmm. um I, I can guess but what were they um a big one is other people <laughs> you know um even even hermits who go entirely into the you know a cave by themselves they're going to encounter admiring fans people who are supplying them with food that's that's one thing yeah um any sort of uh just like the business of staying alive like if it's farming or keeping up mercantile contacts or you know just discussing what the weather is going to be um i mean all of that stuff potential distraction um, and then there's things that your body interjects with, like I'm hungry or I'm sleepy. Um, there's, you know, books, um, we, you know, what we would think of as, um, the equivalent to our smartphones, probably books are just full of ways to focus you, but also ways to just pull you out or make you fall asleep. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then just, you know, um, distractions come sort of from within the mind itself. Like, you know, it, it sort of wanders off thinking about something that it did yesterday or what time is it? Or, um, you know, gee, I wonder when it's going to be dinner. Yeah. 
You know, that's true, though. I mean, the, even for all of us listening in this podcast right now, you're listening, but your mind is probably on a whole different narrative and a different loop. You're thinking about other things. That's the way the brain works. And to quiet that mind, especially for these monks who want to connect their minds to God and to, you know, achieve attention that's um, world class, I guess, is probably a non-medieval way of, of saying it. Did, did they ever reach that? There was general agreement that some people became really good at it, but no one could do it. There was never like a permanent state of achievement. Like <laughs> you got there and then you backslid. Um, and that yeah. was, I mean, even people who were recognized as, you know, like prestigious and accomplished sages would complain about that feeling. So, um, you know, there, there were heroic monks celebrated throughout these centuries. Um, there wasn't sort of one place or time where they seemed to really found locked in on the secret. Um, but all of the ones who did experience some kind of real state of pure concentration or attentiveness found that it could only be temporary. It wasn't just that everyone had failed. It's that it was sort of baked into the the mechanics of being a human being in a world that was in flux, like you just yeah. couldn't have the mind locked in like that until, until the end of time. <laughs> Interesting. Monks uh, were also really um, in tune with the overall, the connection of body and mind. I guess what we would call, you know, more wellness. In fact, there's a quote from your book from Gregory the Great from the sixth century. If the body is not quiet, the mind is not quiet. But I love that. Uh, in fact, for the monks, what were some of the things that they really fought with? And by the way, you said it, it's a war. So it's not just a distraction. It was truly a war they were fighting every day. What were some of the things that they were fighting in their mind every single day? Every single day, it was just like the tiny little stuff that will sound really familiar to us. Like if they're reading a book, instead of paying attention to the words, they'd sort of look at the script and be like, oh, isn't that pretty? Or they'd like count the end to the see how many pages they had left. <laughs> um, it was, it was things like, I'm hungry. When can I eat? Um, it was, um, you know, feeling sleepy in the middle of church. Um, it was getting annoyed with other people, having to kind of counterbalance the thing you'd set out in your schedule to do versus the needs that came up with your fellow monks. This does sound familiar. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. I really feel like in some way, this could be good for a sit uh, a sitcom that's like a workplace comedy. You know, oh. like it's it's all very familiar. <laughs> oh, I you know what the script is writing itself. I love this. I love that. So, if anyone's listening who is a uh, writing a screenplay, contact Jamie, please. And I'd love to consult <laughs> Jamie. This would be fun. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I remember from reading, I was again, I was up late last night. I did not get much sleep because I was immersed in this book. You know, one of the big distractions for monks, and there are men and women monks, is what I learned. I had no idea. Things like uh, food and sex and getting sleepy and this. How do you then steal the mind so that food is not a distraction or hunger or sex is not a distraction? One of the ways that some of the monks of the methods, for example, with sex was to self-castration. Some of the monks then looked at that not as a good thing, but that's a sign of weakness because you couldn't, you didn't have the mental fortitude to two things, I guess, not have sex, but not having sex means that it, that's not the point. It's now you're thinking about it all the time. I ha I'm all over the board here, but could you piece that together for me? 
I, you're pointing to a really good example of the kind of disagreements that monks had with each other. There were some who thought the body was something that basically needed to be suppressed or punished as a way to kind of open up the mind to do the work that it wanted to do. But most of them saw it as more of a working collaboration where you had to consider the body's needs, but also the body's capabilities for helping the mind thrive. So yeah, the example of um, sexual arousal, some monks did think that the way to handle that was to castrate themselves, the male monks um, yeah. anyway. Uh, but others said, you know, it's not just about cutting out or cutting down the body. You, in some way to help the body help the mind, you actually need to start with the mind and to, and to um, discipline the mind so that the body does not get aroused. And when the body does not get aroused, it creates this feedback loop where then the mind also gets stronger. Mm. Uh, and the same with eating. Um, some monks, you know, tried to eat virtually nothing at all, just the barest minimum to stay alive. And then others thought, you know, you just eat in moderation you don't stuff yourself. Um, and what's really important is that, you know, you're not so, emaciated and weak that you start getting distracted because you're not, you know, you don't have the basic sustenance required. Yeah. Uh, of course, to only feed the body in moderation also requires mental commitment. So again, it's this psychosomatic somatopsychic relationship where, um, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about what exactly the right diet is, what exactly sexual restraint looks like, um, in terms of discipline, um, what exactly a sleep schedule is, you know, best suited for, um, for what you want to do in your waking hours. But in the end, nearly all of them agreed that you had to be really attentive to this partnership. It was a really finely tuned marriage really. Yeah. How did, uh, what in, we, as we think about setting goals and, um, and by reaching goals and having a, what I would call more accountability partners or social support system around you with monks and with that, with your research, how did they help each other or, or was that a distraction? Well, that's another really, um, major debate that they had was are people, um, likelier to get in the way or are they <laughs> likelier to help each other out? <laughs> and yeah. So you get very different strains of monastic practice where some, some fall on the, you know what, it's better to go it alone. And some fall in the communal or cenobitic model. You need to do this as part of a, as a group. Um, so, I mean, the thinking goes um, in a community setting, the benefits are that you have a support network um, and in some ways, like you had suggested an accountability buddy, sometimes that could, could, could turn uh, vicious or vindictive. So you do yep. see complaints or anxieties about like monks who tattle too much or who too judgmental, or at least yeah. enjoy kind of being the cop. Um, and then, you know, another benefit, um, is that you can, in addition to monitoring and having mutual support, everybody is kind of involved in work on the same schedule. So like these discussions we have today about is remote work better or is in-person work better? It's sort of related to this idea that, you know, sometimes it can be really good to be synced into the same schedule. So everybody just sort of knows what to do and there's not fussing about, you know, you're not, you don't become yeah. indecisive and therefore potentially distracted. Interesting. On the flip well, side though, people can get in your way and they, yeah, they can kind of 
come by your cell and be like, what's going on? I'm kind of bored. And then impact your work or, you know, there's so many accounts of what you're not supposed to be doing during um, the liturgy, you know, like coughing or elbowing or taking up too much space or praying ostentatiously. It's clear that monks could really annoy each other too. Let's talk about your sources on that. Um, What were your sources for, for writing this book? Because you just gave a really specific example of some of those things that were disagreements or got in their way. And where did you find all of these? Um, A lot of those specific examples of what you're not supposed to do during church, um, come from, um, what are usually just called monastic rules, which, um, are usually like a sort of model or monastic design done by a theorist who's thought a lot about like, what's the best way to organize a community so that everybody really can, um, you know, focus collectively. Um, and so, you know, when it gets to the section on how, how to behave during church, there's a lot of don't do this or that, Um, And in fact, a lot of monks kind of worried that if non-monks ever got a hold of these manuscripts where they were talking about this stuff, it would be kind of embarrassing um, (laughs) to sort of see, like, it it mean, it kind of overly humanized them. (laughs) And here we are, 2023, now we're talking about making a sitcom out of it. So they were right, weren't they? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they definitely would not appreciate my sitcom idea. I think, you know, laughter was a big, they were not happy about it. laughing out loud a lot because that was another way both to show that you were not in control of yourself. And it was also very infectious. Like that's another example where being around a lot of people could really start to interfere with your own focus. (laughs) And you made a point uh, about these uh, early Christian monks that specifically, you know, Christianity may have played into some of those values that I don't know what caused distractions. What Christianity does seem to change in the in the calculus of distraction though is that before monks get on the scene we're we're in in antiquity you you do see philosophers complaining about getting distracted um but monks seem to be the first at least in the west of making that a problem of moralizing it rather than saying okay well we'll just we'll just deal with it as it comes you know um let's be non-reactive to our distractions in this sort of stoic sense. Monks are like, no, that's not enough. We seem to be inherently distracted. It's not just about how we respond to the things around us. It seems like there's something um, inside ourselves that's uh, that's problematic. Um, and And because our mission is to be attentive to the divine, it is an ethical problem if we're not doing that. Um, And this is a thread that continues. Other scholars have have found um, similar Christian discourses in later periods, you know, from the late middle ages on. So there's this long thread of Christianity having a really formative role in this discourse of, of moralizing distraction and seeing it as problematic. On the flip side, there's also a lot of, you know, um, solutions that are generated in the process of making it a problem. But for yeah. us to us to be especially concerned with distraction as something that's a kind of ethical flaw, Christianity has fed into that. That's an interesting point. So the where do distractions come from? Let me see if I'm close on this. Distractions then, the sources that would come from, I'm assuming, uh, demons or the devil. Distractions are from, and this is from, I learned from your book, from from our 
um, fissure with God from the very beginning of time, but also our own humanity. And am I, am I right on all three of those? And is that also linked then to the early Christian times and monks? Yeah, those were all theories that um, early Christian monks um, theorized as origins of distraction, for sure. Um, and, you know, this this fissure from God, it was not just like, um, you know, Adam's fall from from grace. It was also just some monks thought it, was, it even preceded that just by virtue of becoming... Oh part of a created world where there was this multiplicity and before that there had just been God. So by virtue of being in this universe, you know, as, as one sort of particulate and all of it, you were going to inherently then be divided about, wow. you know, what to pay attention to. You know, um, you mentioned that monks saw distraction as a matter of, it's like a war, right? A matter of life and death. You know, line in the book is distraction is older than our technology. And you've talked a lot about that. But if if I if on this podcast, if we were to beam in a few monks right now and have them on on the Zoom with us on this podcast, here's a question I would ask. You know, okay, now guys, you've and men and women, you've you've been through it, you've been doing this for years. Give us your advice. How do we in 2023 avoid distractions? What do you think they would say? I think they would say, um, like, Ooh, you guys really have it rough. Like we get it. <laughs> they would be, um, they were very empathetic to the struggle. So I don't think they would, um, have sort of a pat set of answers, but I think, well, I guess, first of all, they'd say, choose something to commit to. I mean, that was always step one for them. Um, Interesting. Many of us feel distracted now, I think, because we're sort of unsure of what we want to pay attention to. Um, and of course, that doesn't solve it all. I mean, all these monks had converted and then they still got distracted. But that was the sine qua non, I think, is that you've got to got to set some priorities and goals first. Um, and then I think they would say, you know, take stock of all the ways that your mind is influenced by different forces. Don't just make it a matter of focusing on, you know, um, having your phone on silent, you know, also think about how your attention is related to other people and to, to your body and to your habits and to, you know, um, the kind of larger patterns you see throughout your day. Um, and then as a result of that, I think probably their third tip would be, okay, so you see all these different forces that are influencing how you're thinking, um, be creative and energetic and coming up with some, you know, strategies or tactics to really deal with it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, there needs to be a bunch of them, not just one fix. And you're right. And now you said that, that sounds, that sounds so familiar. That sounds so familiar. I mean, that's a very some of the same advice that we give today. I think I love that. And um, but I did. I got to tell you, I did not see the goal thing or having that what I'll call that purpose. I did not see that coming. I didn't anticipate that to be one of your one of your answers. Tell tell me more about why that was such a focus for them. And then I have one more follow up on that. If if you can't agree on what 
it matters most to pay attention to, like what you're going to be spending your time trying to focus on, um, not just in sort of God and the big picture, but, you know, like their reading material, for example, they agreed that you started with the Christian scriptures, you know, you had all the monks had to memorize the book of Psalms, for example, and having this sort of like agreed upon bedrock, you always had something to return to. So Mm. I, I think maybe we suffer more than they did from this first problem of, of indecision of, you know, what is that? What do I do want to commit to? (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, but they talked all the time about how, um, you needed to have those goals in mind all the time. Cause even, even a monk could forget about it. So just Hmm. if, if you lose sight of those goals, then it's very hard for you to orient yourself. Like, am I making progress? Am I, um, you know, (laughs) am I totally off the path? You don't know if you're not thinking about, about those goals. Well, all of us though, are living our life going, going through the life, trying to be less distracted, reaching big goals. And, and I do think that, that step one in all of this is really assessing for us. What is our, what is our goal? What, what do we care about? Where are we spending our time? What's our focus? Because without that North Star for all of us, it is so easy just to get up in the morning and just drift based on what the headline is or Twitter or what the next, the first email you look at during the day. That's a definition of distraction. I'm having a bit of an aha here, and it's so simple and obvious that it kind of hurts, but I'm close, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, that's part of the reason that monks themselves got so frustrated because they they had found that. North star and still struggled. And then on the other hand, I think it's, it's why they had the kind of dedication to keep going because Very there good. was this, you know, for them, work was never just a slog. It was something really inspirational. That's so good. All right. Now, um, you've done all this research on, on these monks from Ireland to middle East, to, uh, China, all over the world. You've wrote this incredible book, The Wandering Mind. How has this research changed you? I, this is kind of embarrassing to admit, I don't get distracted very easily because I kind of tend to have tunnel vision. Um, <laughs> like, like I don't go down Wikipedia wormholes or anything. So I think I was drawn to it because I was like, oh, here are these other nerds who <laughs> I thought, I thought, you know, like, oh, they're not going to get distracted much. Um, what I learned from them is the sort of pleasure in seeing how the little stuff you do day to day can have a kind of um, larger resonance. Like they really delighted in connecting their, you know, intimate practical training that could sometimes be very particular to this larger, like cosmic purpose. Yeah. Uh, that's beautifully said. Jamie, this is the I Dare You podcast. A lot of people listening have big goals. What advice do you have for someone who who's listening in who uh, is thinking about, you know, taking some next steps and uh, doing something really special in 2023? What would you say to them? Um, I would say, don't worry about how people seem to be doing much better <laughs> in previous years or previous centuries. They probably weren't. Um, but do look around to see, you know, what kind of unexpected lessons you can find from people who seem really different from you. It's good advice. I think your book is a wonderful example of that, um, from, from, you know, medieval times and some of the same struggles that they had we're dealing with today. And you give us some really sharp insights. 
So Jamie, um, what's, what's the best way to follow you and stay in touch with all the cool work you're doing? Again, we have the wandering mind. Um, what, how else should we stay in touch? Um, I am so bad with social media. So it's basically just my university page at UGA. So you got <laughs> if it. you Google me, you will find me. <laughs> you saying we will find you or we won't find you? You, you will. It, oh. It'll come up, just not on social media. Jamie, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. This was fascinating to talk to you and a real pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much. It was a great time. Okay, everyone. That is Jamie Kreiner, professor at University of Georgia, now, one thing I did not expect in this interview was Jamie's sharp insights into what she learned from medieval monks, early Christian monks, about having a purpose and having a goal in life. And here we are in 2023, an I Dare You podcast, having the very same discussion. So this may be another opportunity for us, almost 90 days into 2023, to re-examine what our goal is for the year, what is our purpose, why are we doing what we're doing, Let's do it for the monks, what do you say? Let's just revisit that and see if we can bring even more focus and less distractions into our lives. So now as you listen, who are you going to share this episode with? People who are important in your life, family, friends, colleagues. This is a fresh perspective on leadership and about distractions. The growth of the podcast is happening not because of some big ad budget or some big influencer. <laughs> <laughs> it's all because of you, and I thank you, and I want you to know how much I appreciate you when you take that step. Of course, only if you like the episode. <laughs> and now, next week, we're talking about wellness in a really cool way. Our guest has got some unique perspectives to share with all of us, and I can't wait for you to hear it. I'm finishing up editing right now. So look forward to seeing you next week in I Dare You podcast. I'll see you then.